In John chapter 18, Jesus has already been betrayed by Judas. He's already stood before Jewish leaders. He's already been denied by his dear friend Peter. And now he stands before the very governor of Judea, appointed by the emperor Tiberius, Pilate. And in their brief but infamous dialogue, Pilate says to Jesus, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. And for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, for all who have an ear to hear, let them hear the words of eternal life this morning. May everyone who is of the truth listen to Jesus' voice in the pages of Scripture today. And may truth be all that is honored in our midst, even now as your word is released for the upbuilding and the growth of your beloved and chosen people. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. What Pilate revealed to Jesus in their brief conversation was a haunting emptiness of soul. An emptiness that could look the very embodiment of truth in the eyes and call into question the very category that he represents. And yet Pilate's question is a question that is asked in every single generation. What is truth? And if it exists, what role is it to have in the life of God's people? It is, as one person writes, an essential concept without which the human mind cannot function. Just a couple years ago, Time Magazine thought it would run a front-page design that read, Is Truth Dead?, modeling its design to perfectly mimic their famous 1966 cover, Is God Dead?, calling into question the crowning achievement of the age, the slaying of propositional truth for all people at all times. If truth is the self-expression of God to humanity... And if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then the people of God are nothing if they are not a people of the truth. Truth creates us. Truth animates us. Truth guides us. It brings course correction when we stray. It is the foundation for our relationships. It is the fabric that must bind us together. It is the truth that sets us free. This morning, the the Apostle Paul tells us how it is that truth is to flow amidst the spiritually gifted body of Christ, for whom Christ, the risen and the conquering King, has poured out His grace, gifting each believer with all the tools necessary to build up His body. As we summarize and think through the main concept at play in the, in the selection of chapter 4 that we're considering this morning, verses 7 through 16, 
We might summarize it this way. Because the ascended Christ has given spiritual gifts to every Christian, Christ's body is equipped to build itself up by speaking the truth in love and growing in Christian maturity. We see an outline for our thoughts here. First, in verses 7 through 10, we see the gifts from the ascended Christ given to his church. In verses 11 through 13, gifts are for the purpose of equipping the church for ministry and gifts. That should be three, not two, number twos. Gifts for maturing the church in, in truth, verses 12 through 14. Aiding the Ephesian church in understanding how it is that they are to live a life that is worthy of their calling is Paul's emphasis from chapter 4 onward. So as we considered several weeks ago, a life worthy of the gospel is expressed in deferential love for one another, humility, gentleness, patience. It's eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's anchored in eternal truth. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Paul turns his focus from unity to diversity within Christ's body. But unity shouldn't be misunderstood as uniformity. That is, everyone looks alike, thinks alike, operates identically to one another. Christ's body is this beautiful mixture of all people who call on the name of the Lord in repentance and genuine faith. But how is it that Christ intends for His body to grow in this lofty call to live lives consistent with the gospel? So what does humility and gentleness and patience and love look like when laboring side by side in the work of the ministry? What's the end goal? What's the chief purpose as we strive for such unity? Well, verses 7 through 16 answer these questions for us. First, let's consider how it is that the ascended Christ gives grace and gifts to every believer in verses 7 through 10. Paul tells us that grace was given to each one of us, as we read here at the beginning of verse 7. The Greek word charis, or grace, is something given to each believer. So in this literal sense, every believer is a charismatic, you might say. And while we don't want to overly compartmentalize various dimensions of God's grace, in this sense, Paul is not specifically referring to God's salvation per se, but rather to the divine empowerment that flows from this grace and salvation. Paul speaks to the same aspect of God's grace when he writes in chapter 3, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, he goes on to share. Paul is here attributing his revealing of this mystery of the gospel as God's grace for the benefit of others. I think the same dynamic is at play when Paul writes in chapter 4 of God's grace for the direct benefit of every believer. 
We see at the end of verse 7 that it is according to the measure of Christ's gift. This divine empowerment of grace is according to the measure of Christ's gift. So here it is Christ who is doing the allocating out of His gifts of grace to each and every one of His redeemed children. The spiritual gifts we have been given are indeed from the Spirit. But here, another dimension is added. Christ Himself is the one dispensing these gifts according to His sovereign, wise plan. So what's the basis that is here for this claim? Well, Paul then validates it in verse 8. He validates Christ's gift-giving authority by adding, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Paul is quoting here from Psalm 68, and Paul now supports his point that Christ bestows spiritual gifts to his people. This psalm envisions God as the divine warrior who triumphs in battle and then returns victorious, ascending his holy mountain with honor and with glory, and giving us a a glimpse into the ancient world from which this image is drawn. One commentator writes here, F.F. Bruce, he he helps us here by writing, One may picture a military leader returning to Jerusalem at the head of his followers after routing an enemy army and taking many prisoners. The victorious procession with the captives in its train makes its way up to the Temple Mount, preceded by the sacred ark, which symbolizes the invisible presence of the God of Israel. And to him, a sacrifice of thanksgiving will be offered when the procession reaches the temple precincts and the tribute received by the victor from the vanquished quo will be dedicated to him. This tribute is referred to as gifts, which the victor has received among men. Although God is clearly in view in Psalm 68, Paul, by way of analogy, understands Jesus to be the divine warrior who fulfills God's dramatic and sweeping conquest pictured in this psalm. So Jesus has conquered the powers of darkness, and He now blesses His people by dispensing gifts to them from His exalted position. In a parenthetical way, Paul adds in verse 9, in saying He ascended, what does it mean that he also, but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? The New American Standard is a little clearer, where it reads, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? So the, the view of early church fathers, as well as the consensus view through the centuries, writes, commentator, is that Christ's descent refers to here His appearance in Hades, or to the underworld, to proclaim victory over the forces of darkness, and to lead the souls of the departed saints in victorious procession by means of His resurrection power. Similar to even the statement that we just read of what would have been the ancient context. So even the historic Christian statement of faith, the Apostles' Creed, states that Christ descended into hell. Now this is a 
a confusing topic, a confusing concept, and one worthy of much lengthier treatment and explanation. And very transparently, a matter that I'm not entirely convinced of one way or the other. Uh, But there are about five separate passages in the New Testament that could teach this Christ's dissension into Hades and to proclaim victory there. But I think there are good explanations to the contrary for each one. Nevertheless, it's my opinion that in Ephesians 4 here, the lower regions of the earth into which Christ descended is stated in contrast to the heavenly places that Paul has been speaking to consistently time and time again in this book in particular. It was in the humiliation of Christ in His earthly ministry that He gave Himself as a sacrificial lamb, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, to take away the sins of the world. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, Christ's humility, being born in the likeness of men, taking on the form of a servant, This precedes His exaltation and His exalted name that is above every name. The Gospel of John makes several references that are very helpful to us in understanding this regarding ascension and descension of Jesus. John writes, No one has ascended into heaven, but He who descended from heaven. And other similar statements John makes. One writer says, in the fourth gospel, the ascent is from the earth to heaven, and the preceding descent correspondingly from heaven to earth. I think the same idea is at work here. That is to say, the lower parts of the earth that you're reading before you there should be understood as meaning the earth below. So this this interpretation seems to harmonize with the rest of Ephesians as well as other New Testament texts. But it is strengthened, I believe, by verse 10. Verse 10, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Hebrews tells us that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Three chapters later, again in Hebrews, the writer says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest exalted above the heavens. So the ascension of Jesus is emblematic of his completed conquest in salvation. The result of his triumph is graciously then giving gifts to his church which as in chapter 1 of Ephesians states the church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So we read further, hoping Paul will tell us more about the nature of these gifts and, and how they're to operate in the life of the church. So as we turn to verses 11 through 13, we read, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We see in verse 11, Christ's gifts of leadership to His church. Every believer 
every believer, that's each one of you who have repented of your sins and who are trusting in the gospel for salvation, each believer is gifted by Christ. But certain individuals, as we read here, are gifted in establishing the church, in proclaiming the word, in boldly communicating the gospel, and in faithful shepherding of the flock into truth. We can't deeply investigate each one of these categories, but let's briefly consider the foundational and and thus temporary nature of the apostles and the prophets for a moment. The apostles. Well, Paul says in Ephesians 2, just a couple chapters earlier, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is a critical verse in understanding these two offices for the church. Apostles were individuals who had seen the risen Christ, Scripture tells us. Certainly the twelve disciples and or those who held significant authority in the foundation of the church. People such as James and Silas and Barnabas, each referred to as an apostle. The term apostle seems to be used more broadly, at least in a couple instances, for those who served in pioneer missionary work such as Andronicus and Junia, who were called apostles at the end of the book of Romans and were likely well-known for their frontier gospel-spreading work among the churches. However, I believe Paul's usage here is is a term in Ephesians 4 that refers to the temporary authoritative office given to the unique and limited number of individuals in the formation and the establishment of Christ's church in the first century. As Professor Tom Schreiner helpfully writes, he says, now that the foundation of the church has been laid, we no longer have authoritative apostles like the twelve, Paul, James, etc. Apostolic authority is enshrined in the Scriptures. The, The Scriptures constitute our sole and final authority. And the teaching of the apostles is preserved in the scriptural witness. So how does the church continue to benefit, though, from Christ's gift of the apostles today? Well, as we just mentioned, through the scriptures. They continue to ground us and teach us and impact us through and enshrined in the sacred word of God. Prophets. On a similar vein, Paul writes of Christ's gift to the church in the prophets. Harmonizing with how prophecy is used throughout Scripture, a prophet was appointed by God to speak God's truth to God's people, oftentimes to warn, to encourage, to instruct, but in a more spontaneous fashion than preaching, which unpacks and and explains what God has already written down. And once again, because Paul says earlier in Ephesians 2.20 that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, I think it's best to conclude that the apostolic and the prophetic witness serves Christ's church today through the Scriptures rather than through ongoing prophets, so-called prophets in the world today. Now, I know our country has no shortage of false teaching And we've done a really good job of exporting it, sadly, tragically, to the rest of the world. But perhaps the prevalence of of prophets, per se, who claim to speak for God 
is rampant in certain parts of the world. For our brothers and sisters here from various African countries, you all probably know the unique power of these prophets, so-called, and how compelling they can be. I encourage you, stick with the Scriptures in all things and guard your minds and your hearts from anything that goes against God's revealed truth. Whether through relationships back home or sermons that you find on YouTube, filter all you encounter through the lens of God's Word. What about this category of the evangelists? Well, these were individuals uniquely gifted and boldly proclaiming the gospel and equipping others to actively do the same. Philip, in Acts 21, is specifically called an evangelist. And Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, uh, these are the only two times the word is used outside of our context. But notice Timothy, a pastor, is also called to do the work of an evangelist. Pastor-teacher, this last category is, is really one category, pastor, shepherd, teacher. These are elders, oftentimes, sometimes compensated, who serve Christ's flock as under-shepherds, submissive to the chief shepherd through watching over the flock by means of, maybe even chiefly, with the Word. And why are these leaders, why are these gifts given to the body? Well, in verse 12, Leaders are given to equip the saints for ministry. So we live in a professionalized culture that has its pros and cons. Oftentimes churches can forget that the kind of healthy church ministry that the Scriptures and Paul envisions is one of mutual service and responsibility with one another. Not of a church that thinks of hiring pastors so they can do all the work for them. Local church leaders equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Equipping happens primarily through this pastor-teacher's teaching as he gently pushes and prods and encourages the flock to fulfill their own Christ-given gifting in the body. So this work of ministry is for building up the body of Christ. And what a joy is ours as an assembly to labor side by side in the work of the ministry, whether this is vacation Bible school or fall festival or Easter Sunday morning or ministry trips across the country or simply prayer on Wednesday nights or the faithful teaching that happens to our children or chiefly the nursery. What a joy is ours when we serve together, and the effect is that the body is built up in more ways than we can ever see. And how and for how long do we labor? And toward what end do we pour ourselves out in this work of the ministry? Until, as Paul writes, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in verse 13, we see the anticipated outcome 
and the goal of Christ's work of imparting gifts to his people. It is the edification of the body. He expects each of his children to reach spiritual maturity. This is not some higher plane of enlightenment that we break into and we never go back to struggling with sin. Rather, this is exercising spiritual discernment in all areas. This takes a a spiritual work ethic of sorts. Even as was just read for us in 1 Peter, a sober-mindedness and a self-control that ends up keeping us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. While a professional golfer might find it effortless to swing his driver and hit the ball over 300 yards because he's done it over and over with refined skill and an intentional focus years on end, if he completely stops applying himself to this work, he won't be able to continue performing the way he does. The same is true in the Christian life. The work of the ministry is something we are continually after. Never telling ourselves, you know, I've had a good decade or two. It's gone pretty well for me pursuing Christ. I think I'll take the next decade off. Not at all. God certainly sovereignly changes our circumstances, changes our capacity at times, but never an early retirement is taken from the work of the ministry for the people of God. From verse 13 alone, spiritual maturity looks like unity with fellow believers, intimate knowledge and fellowship with God's Son, a full-grown kind of spiritual stability and maturity, and a deliberate look looking to Christ as our example and our hope. So unity in the faith is a team sport. Remember Paul's earlier words, we must be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verses 14 through 16 now tell us precisely how this full-grown kind of spiritual maturity is going to happen. We see gifts for maturing the truth in the truth. Uh, the church in the truth. We read in verses 14 through 16, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it was equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I can recall thinking that I was pretty big stuff when I was freshman in college. And I I remember coming up with the idea that me and a few other brass players who played instruments would would, uh, instead of continuing to attend our church, which seems so normal, I'd done that my whole life, I would come up with the concept of, of traveling. What if I got a whole group together, we got all of our music, and instead of going to one church every week, which is not nearly as fun as going to tons of different churches every single week, 
I thought that was a great idea until I talked to one of my professors. And he just looked at me sternly and said, why would you do that? And I was like, well, it's exciting, you know? New people, it's a, or, uh, you know, I get to play a lot. Um, friendships develop, you know, it'll be great. And he said, and you'll be robbing your local church every single Sunday with the contribution that Christ has intended for you as a working ligament to contribute for the building up to the maturity of the fullness of the stature of Christ every single Sunday. Where will you be for your local church if you are absent? And you think that you going an inch deep and a mile wide week after week with people is far better than Christ's intention here. And it was a huge course correction for my thinking. Majorly helpful steerage. In a similar way, we see this at work. Verse 14, maturity here brings stability. Paul gives several analogies for spiritual immaturity. Childhood. The concept of a, a vessel aimlessly being tossed in the sea. So not immature children, but mature adults. By referring to children, Paul doesn't imply innocency. That's not the idea here, like he does elsewhere in other places. But rather immaturity, like he does in 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's the idea he's going for. And then not being carried about by tumultuous, stormy winds of false teaching conjured up by the cunning and crafty and deceitful schemes of men, but rather the steadiness of a life grounded in truth. So younger kids in the room, you very likely long to be bigger and faster and smarter and quicker and all of this, wiser, stronger. But do you know that unless something really unique happens in your body, you will grow up. You will, right? And if your body doesn't go along with that plan, I'm sure you'll, you'll see some medical doctors about that. But that's the goal, that you would not stay as you are now, as cute and wonderful as your parents say that you are. No, you must grow, and you should grow. It's expected here, naturally. God intends that every Christian not stay as a child spiritually. When it comes to our spiritual condition, we've got to grow. Why? So that when those waves crash upon us, the smallest undertow of deception does not whisk us away to sea. So what then is the remedy? What binds together all we've considered thus far, together making it all work? Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. This maturity in verse 15 is centered on the truth. As you survey and then organize even the, the spiritual gifts as they are presented in the Scriptures in the New Testament, they're oftentimes divided into gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. And if we notice the four gifts mentioned in verse 11, they all involve speaking. This helps us see how the whole context of this chapter is geared toward growing into Christ who is our head, but it's inseparably and unmistakably tied and anchored 
to speaking the truth in love. Building up the body of Christ, attaining to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, measuring up to the stature of the fullness of Christ, so our corporate personality as a church is evident and marked Christ-likeness. How does this happen? Speaking the truth in love. What might this look like? What might this look like? Well, perhaps it looks like the intergenerational love in a local church of an empty nester who reaches out to a fellow church member in college, learning that that college student has fallen in love with an unbelieving classmate, and consequently the college student is pulling back from all things church-related, even God-related. The empty nester makes contact, asks the college student out for coffee, and after listening, in order to make sure they understand the particulars accurately, they bring God's truth to bear upon that person's life in Christian love and in evident humility. It may also look like a young believer who's just filled with excitement and passion and zeal and enthusiasm to reach others with the gospel, even if it means not showing up for work and skipping uh, church on Sundays and spending money he doesn't have to, to buy gifts for people he's trying to reach and anything he can do. This zealous young man is tremendously helped by praying with other seasoned Christian men on Wednesday evenings who remind him of his call to be faithful in all areas of his life and to grow and to be better at discerning the Lord's will in these areas of imbalance and possible obsession. It might also look like the friendship of a married couple in the church loving and encouraging a middle-aged man or woman who has longed for marriage, but the Lord has seen fit to keep them unmarried. A loving community is also provided, is provided alongside loving words of exhortation to keep guarding one's heart against idolizing and idealizing an idea that may never be the Lord's will, encouraging the individual to keep growing in the all-satisfying presence of God. These are only just a few examples, normal and routine as they are, of the various and sundry ways in which the church grows as members in loving fellowship and relationship to each other, who do not merely smile and shake hands on the Lord's day, but they speak. They conquer the fear to be quiet, and they speak the truth in love with appropriate timing and gentleness and care. So then what's the effect of this kind of relationship as it flourishes in a church? As Paul writes in verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The New Living Translation reads in a more paraphrastic manner, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. 
Is Eden Baptist Church a healthy body? Well, begin by asking yourself, do I conscientiously remember that it is none other than the ascended Christ who has gifted me personally so that I might benefit and build up his body? That's humbling. That's incredibly striking. Christ has gifted each of us in different ways and perfectly according to his plan. If so, am I sitting on my hands? Am I mocking the giver by not opening up this gift and using it for God's glory and the church's good? We just had a birthday in our house. Imagine the joy of seeing Jude excited about a gift and then never opening it. It's just counterintuitive. Christ has given you this gift Unbox it and use it for the building up of his body. Another question, do I remember that I am always in need for more and more equipping when it comes to the body of Christ? You and I, are, we never reach a point of, of you know, 100% saturation. I've got all the knowledge I need, all the equipping, I'm done. I've reached the top. No, God's Word may never change, but your life changes all the time. And as His Word, though you may have heard it before, comes to strike you and, and bear upon your soul in a brand new way, because the circumstances and the trials and the sufferings of life have dramatically changed, and you come to see the Scriptures with brand new application for this season of life, have you lost your appetite with a proud sort of thinking that, yeah, 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 I've heard this before. If I'm going to merely weather the storms of life and get through, I miss the prioritizing of the teaching of the local church intended to accomplish this very goal. That is why we're not just trying to... to to be overly organized and, and just trying to get our ducks in a row when we prioritize the significance of a church calendar. We understand what happens at each of these gatherings, specifically the ones where the Word is coming to bear on believers. This is how Christ intends to grow you so that you can unbox those gifts and build up the body. It is theologically imperative that we understand and think in these terms. Another question, do I trust a sovereign God who is so wise in how He organizes His church so that I can trust Him in a way that I know that precisely the spiritual giftedness that He's given me is up to Him to determine in His church rather than me to autonomously declare. Do I trust Him such that I may not even know precisely my spiritual giftedness, but with a servant's heart and a joyful willingness to fill whatever holes may be needed, I submit my life to Christ so He can use me as He desires in the assembly? 
And though we say this from time to time, it bears repeating. Christ knows how every joint and ligament work together so that the effect is a corporate personality of Christ's likeness that is, builds itself up and is a light to the world. He knows. And if we approach ministry in His church in a way that is, is self-oriented, I am a this kind of person. I do this. Don't you even know that I was the director of blah, blah, blah <laughs> at my last church? And then we see how my area that I think that I have to have to serve Christ is perhaps filled by someone who's twice as gifted as me. What am I to conclude? I'll just sort of gripe and make little jabs and comments here and there until I finally kind of weasel my way into where I want to be. No. Through selflessness and a servant's heart, we take up our cross and follow Christ. We take up our towel and serve in any way that He desires. And I'm confident Christ will make clear a newfound, perhaps, way to build up and to edify His church. As we conclude our study on these verses this morning, and in a moment, turn these thoughts into prayer to God. Let's remember this thing called the church does not belong to us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end. He has purchased it with His own blood, and He's custom-designed and built it for His purposes and for His glory. So may He give us the courage to fight the fear of not speaking the truth in love or to bludgeoning one another with the sledgehammer of truth, that we wouldn't overcompensate in that manner either, but that we would live in simple trust that the church is His design and we are never more safe than when we are following His blueprint for the building up of His body. Let's seek the Lord now in prayer. Father, Your Word is truth. Sanctify us in this Word, which is truth. Lead us to newfound, deeper understandings of its transformative power for us. Father, we have heard from You we have seen Christ. We have heard His voice. I pray that You'd allow us to just kill thoughts of complacency, of going through the motions this morning. Father, I pray that this assembly would learn more and more of how it is to grow and build itself up in love. Father, may we more and more be a truth-speaking church in which truth permeates all we do, and consequently, in a correlative manner, we become, our powers of discernment become exercised so that we can detect falsehood and we can detect cunning and deceitful schemes so that we are not whisked away by false teaching. Father, in all things, we pray that the glory of Jesus would be put on display, that the world would know and see 
the fragrance of Christ in our midst, even as we seek to serve one another and to build up your body. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.